If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. If you went on a road trip and you didn't stop for a Big Mac or drop a crispy fry between the car seats or use your McDonald's bag as a placemat, then that wasn't a road trip. It was just a really long drive. At participating McDonald's. As I'm sure you already know, this podcast is produced by the team behind BBC History Magazine, Britain's best-selling history magazine. And if you haven't had a chance to get hold of our magazine recently, we'd like to offer you the chance to get a copy of our next issue absolutely free. Please text the word HISTORY to 78070 to request your free magazine today. One of our team will be in touch to organise delivery direct to your door. This offer is available for a limited time only and only available for UK residents. So please don't miss out. Text HISTORY to 78070 to get your free copy today. Just a quick note, texts are normally charged at your standard network rate. Please check with your provider for further details. And welcome to the History Extra podcast from BBC History magazine. I'm Ellie Cawthorn. Today's interview is with the journalist and former cabinet minister, Andrew Adonis. He's the author of Ernest Bevan, Labour's Churchill, which explores the life and career of one of the dominant British political figures in the Second World War and post-war eras. Andrew spoke to our editor, Rob Attar. First of all, I wonder if we could actually begin with the book's title, which I'm sure will intrigue many listeners. Why do you see Bevan as Labour's Churchill? Bevin was at Churchill's right hand all the way through the Second World War, and Churchill's view is that he wouldn't have won the war without him, that uh, Bevin organised the home front while Churchill commanded the battle front, but also he was very Churchillian in many of his characteristics. Neither of them went to university. Bevin came from a family of, uh, of illiterate farm labourers, so of course his, his background was in that sense very different from Churchill, but Churchill never went to university either, and they had this great bond as being in different ways self-made men. Uh, They also were both larger than life. I mean, hugely dramatic and uh, imposing personalities with massive egos. And they were also both, as I came to um, understand more about Bevin, they were both deep imperialists as well. They were both Victorian imperialists. And whilst uh, Bevin is foreign secretary after 1945, uh, he, he was every bit as committed to maintaining the British Empire as Winston Churchill had been. And Churchill famously said, when faced with calls for the independence of India in 1942, I did not become the king's first minister in order to preside over the liquidation of the British Empire. And that was very much Bevin's view too. And as I explain in the book, there's a big positive that comes out of it. I think it's the imperialist Churchillian side to Bevin that enables him to stand up to Stalin, which I think is his greatest achievement, both as a minister and maybe throughout his life, is that he prevents Stalin rampaging over Western Europe, which could easily have happened after 1945, when Stalin is the dominant political and military power on the on the European continent. And 
The good side of that is that that comes from his Churchillian imperialist makeup. The bad side is that he's, he's not keen on giving independence to any bits of the British Empire in the 1940s. And the huge run-in that he has in Palestine, which causes massive problems because Britain under Ernie Bevin won't agree to the creation of the State of Israel, which leads to massive terrorism and uh, uh, all of the problems which we've seen in the uh, uh, in Palestine since, with the uh, inability of a Jewish state to coexist with a Palestinian state. That all goes back to Britain's mishandling of Palestine, where it was the colonial power after 1945. And that too, I'm afraid, is part of the Churchillian makeup. So in all kinds of ways, Ernie Bevin was Labour's Churchill. And as you alluded to there, he was fairly unusual in being a politician who uh, came from the working classes uh, compared to a lot of politicians of that time. So could you tell us a little bit about his upbringing and how he moved into the political sphere? Ernie Bevin was the first front-rank politician who came from a straightforwardly working-class background. Uh, his uh, mum was a single mum, uh, and she died when he was only eight, so he was an orphan at the age of eight. Uh, the family were farm labourers, uh, only because of Gladstone's 1870 Education Act did he even get a primary education. He was the first generation of farm labourers who were sent to school. Uh, and that was a, a massive part of his makeup because he uh, uh, left school at 11. Uh, he did at least have an education, but he had this massive drive thereafter to get on uh, and became an autodidact and went to university extension classes when he made it to Bristol. The reason he made it to Bristol is he wasn't content with staying as a farm labourer. And when he's passed around his relations after his mum dies, he falls out with a farmer. They literally have a fight. He walks out and the only thing he has is the clothes on his back and the addresses of his brothers, who are much older, who are in Bristol. And he walks to Bristol and one of them works in a butcher's shop and the other works in a restaurant and he does odd jobs between the two. And it's because he's a brilliant organiser that he gets involved in strikes in Bristol because industrial relations are very bitter around the First World War. And it's his organising ability in these strikes that leads him, first of all, to set up a branch of the Dockers' Union for carters, that's uh, drivers of horse-drawn carriages, and then in due course he becomes an organiser for the Dockers' Union. So it's an amazing personal story which leads uh, him from being a farm labourer to being foreign secretary and when he becomes foreign secretary some wag famously says there are only two posts that Ernie Bevin could hold in the foreign office one is foreign secretary and the other is doorkeeper and uh, that's very much how people saw him he was this massively self-made man another great saying about him was he could neither read write nor speak and he did all three triumphantly he was a kind of force of nature in much the same way as Winston Churchill was but from a working class background Churchill himself called Bevin the working class John Bull which sort of sums him up Bevin rose through the ranks of the trade union movement. How do you think that union background shaped his political philosophy? The unions were the making of Ernie Bevin. He created his own union out of the Dockers' Union and brought 14 other unions together with it to create uh, the first big uh, union that there'd been in the transport sectors uh, outside um, the railwaymen. And uh, that was the making of him. As, as both a union leader, he, he came to be leading the largest union in the country, indeed the largest union in the free world, 
by the 1930s, but also as a Labour politician, because this was in the 1920s and 30s, just as democracy had been introduced into Britain, the first democratic franchise in Britain is introduced in 1918. And that is a huge boost to the Labour Party and the trade unions, who are the biggest force in the Labour Party, the trade unions propel Ernie Bevin to the fore, not just as a trade union leader, but in due course as a Labour leader too, particularly after the mid-1930s, when Ernie Bevin forms a very close partnership, which indeed becomes a friendship with Clement Attlee. Uh, Bevin essentially puts Clement Attlee in as leader of the Labour Party in the mid-1930s, when uh, he he evicts a guy called George Lansbury, who is the 1930s lookalike for Jeremy Corbyn, who'd been a pacifist, was against standing up to the dictators. Ernie Bevin uh, believed in standing up to the dictators. He could see in in Hitler, much as as Churchill could, a a megalomaniac who would dominate the whole, whole continent and stamp out liberty if he wasn't stood up to. And in order to stand up to him, he gets uh, George Lansbury out of the leadership of the Labour Party because uh, Lansbury is a pacifist and won't stand up to Hitler. And it's because of that uh, and and a a famous Labour Party conference in 1935 where Bevin leads the charge against Lansbury. It's because of that that Clement Attlee becomes leader of the Labour Party. And it's the partnership between the two of them, the middle-class parliamentarian in Clement Attlee and the working-class trade unionist in Ernie Bevin, it's that partnership which propels Labour to the top of the British state, both within the coalition government with Winston Churchill after 1940, and then when Labour wins the 1945 election into government on its own. So um, when war breaks out, uh, Bevin is not at this point even a member of Parliament. So why do you think Churchill was so keen to bring him into his wartime government? Churchill understood with a a brilliant intuition that unless the working classes were mobilised freely in the war, then there would never be a united war effort. This was more than just bringing the Labour Party into the coalition, which he did by bringing Clement Attlee in as his deputy prime minister. What Churchill wanted was the organised working class to be really passionately committed to the war. And that meant Ernie Bevin, as leader of the biggest trade union in the country, being at his right hand. He'd been through the First World War when uh, there'd been massive labour relations problems. Uh, Even Lloyd George, who could charm the birds off the trees, never got the unions fully on side in the First World War. And after the war... Uh, there were huge industrial relations crises, which is what led to the general strike in 1926. And uh, Attlee saw it the same way. Attlee realised if the coalition government was going to be a success, it was very important for him as leader of the Labour Party to have the trade unions at his right hand. And so it was this triumvirate of Churchill, Attlee and Bevin that essentially got Britain through the war. And all three of them understood the importance of the other two. They were three legs of the stool, and it proved to be a remarkably sturdy stool, which made this uh, coalition government, headed by Winston Churchill in 1940, as I describe it in the book, the most successful government in the history of the British state. And it was those three amazing characters and very, very different, Winston Churchill, Ernest Bevin and Clement Attlee, that make that government such a success. And what was Bevin's contribution then? What were his main achievements in the war years? Bevin was Minister of Labour 
And as Minister of Labour, he mobilised the home fronts. Uh, He mobilised home production. He got production levels up. It was famously said of Bevin in the Second World War that uh, a larger proportion of the UK labour force was committed to the war effort in Britain than in Nazi uh, Germany or Italy because it was done freely by the trade unions themselves coming in freely behind the war effort. And another part of the reason for that is Bevin uh, um, pioneered the conscription of of women into the industrial effort at home. Uh, Women in their 20s and 30s were were conscripted, which didn't happen on the continent. And that wouldn't have happened but for Bevin's ability to mobilise hearts and minds, which he did not just by taking decisions as Minister of Labour using wartime powers in London. He travelled the country the whole time, as he had when he was leader of the Transport and General Workers' Union. He was constantly doing meetings of employers, doing big public meetings. He pioneered... Um, popular culture during the war, set up an organisation called ENSA, which did popular entertainments. He often hosted them from his native Bristol, would be on the BBC hosting workers' playtime and all of that. He got companies, uh, troops of artistes that did uh, did wartime broadcasts, uh, a very, very uh, popular programme called Workers' Playtime that was broadcast on tannoys over factories up and down the country. He had this great sense of what the working class needed. He pioneered uh, workers' canteens. He set up thousands of canteens, or they were set up under his name, so that uh, uh, workers could get decent meals, which hadn't happened before. That was all done under his leadership. It was an extraordinary effort of labour mobilisation during the war, and it was phenomenally successful. And while he was doing that, as well as trying to help the British war effort, was he also using this as an opportunity to improve the lives of the working classes? That's absolutely true. He negotiated better deals for workers as Minister of Labour on behalf of the British state in the Second World War than he'd ever been able to negotiate as leader of the Transport and General Workers' Union. But he did it with the same motivation to raise the lots of the least advantaged in society, to get them a a, a fair deal. And uh, he turned this into what was called in the wartime tripartism, which was unions, employers and the government. And that had never happened. He famously said, uh, as Minister of Labour, I want to be Minister of Labour from 1940 to 1990, just as Mr Gladstone had been Chancellor of the Exchequer from 1860 through to 1930. What he meant was he was going to create institutions and a legacy that would last for the generation afterwards. And it did. The unions became essentially a pillar of the state. Tripartism, that is, regular negotiations, wage deals and agreements on terms and conditions between the government, unions and employers, that remained the norm after uh, the Second World War. The only difference was that whereas he said he wanted to be Minister of Labour until 1990, I think most people think he was basically evicted when Margaret Thatcher became Prime Minister in 1979 and had very different ideas about the role of the trade unions. Now, one aspect of his war work that people may well have heard of is the Bevin Boys. I wonder if you could tell us a little bit more about that and whether that was actually controversial in some areas at the time. Uh, The Bevin Boys were hugely controversial and they show what a dramatic uh, force of nature Ernie Bevin was. Because when war production was in serious jeopardy in 1944 to 45, because there wasn't enough coal, which of course was then the main source of power, uh, and that was because a lot of the miners had been sent to, to fight in France at the end of the war. What Bevin did was to mobilise conscription to apply not just 
to military forces, but to actually send young men down the mines. One in 10 of all conscripts on a lottery basis in 1944 and 45 were sent down the mines. Now, this was hugely controversial at the time. There were quite high levels of desertion amongst the Bevan boys, though they're celebrated in retrospect at the time. Particularly middle-class boys didn't want to go down the mines. They'd much rather go and fight because it was more glamorous in France and Germany than than go down the mines. But... uh, the huge uh, personality and power of Ernie Bevan, who turned up at the mines themselves and made speeches to these young men about their, the importance of their work for the war and so on, just about made this system work. And it's my judgment in the book that I don't think anybody but Ernie Bevan could have got one in 10 of all conscripts in 1944 and 45 to have gone down the mines, many of whom, of course, uh, were killed in the most terrible circumstances uh, through, uh, through becoming Bevan boys. So do you get the sense that his force of personality had a real impact on his political career? It definitely had uh, an impact both on his political career and on Britain's ability to win the war. It's my view that the two personalities that enabled Britain to win the war were Winston Churchill, the aristocratic bulldog, uh, you know, hailing from his great ancestor, the Duke of Marlborough, you know, the, the, the British spirits, which was going to stand up indomitable against Hitler, but also Ernie Bevin, who was the working class John Ball, who represented the united will of the working classes, both to win the war and by winning the war to get a new deal for working people. Now, famously, in the summer of 1945, the Labour Party won the general election by a landslide and Bevin gets his position as foreign secretary. Why do you think he was given that role? Bevin wanted to be Chancellor in 1945. He'd formed a very strong and unlikely friendship with John Maynard Keynes, the great economist, in the interwar years, because they both battled together against mass unemployment. It was Keynes who had the brilliant intellectual ideas about the new role of the Treasury to invest in slumps, which had never happened before, the government investing in slumps to create jobs. But it was Ernie Bevin who brought the practical experience of how you could mobilise working people to do big public works, big construction projects, and all of that. And it was the coming together of those two which led to the Keynesian revolution in policymaking uh, in the 1930s, which found its voice in the famous 1944 employment white paper that committed post-war governments, whether they be Labour or Conservative, to maintaining, quote-unquote, a high and stable level of employment. Now, Ernie Bevin wanted to see that through as Chancellor, but it was Attlee who persuaded him to become Foreign Secretary. And the reason Attlee did it first and foremost, was because he needed a tough guy to send in against Stalin at Potsdam and in all the post-war negotiations. As Attlee famously put it, uh, I thought I didn't need a sniper, I needed a tank. And Hugh Dalton, who was initially penciled in to become Foreign Secretary, he saw as too much of a sniper, whereas he needed a real strong man, somebody like Stalin himself in terms of organisation ability and force of personality and dominance in a room. He needed Ernie Bevin. And that proved a brilliant appointment. Uh, when Attlee and, and Bevin turn up at the Potsdam Conference, which is their first act on the day that they're appointed as Prime Minister and Foreign Secretary at the end of July uh, 1945, Bevin starts shouting at Stalin in the conference chamber. He says he won't have what Stalin is proposing in terms of taking all of the heavy industry out of Germany that would have have led to a complete economic collapse and in terms of the borders of Poland. And uh, Stalin is so shocked by this uh, dealing with this big 
trade union leader, whereas he'd been used to dealing with effete British aristocrats, that he develops a diplomatic cold the following day, uh, indeed then the day after, and doesn't turn up for 48 hours in the conference chamber while he regroups. And uh, that relationship of equality, which Bevin establishes with Stalin, was to be hugely important in keeping Stalin both out of West Germany and also out of the wider Western Europe in these crucial six years after 1945. Still to come on the History Extra podcast. So Bevin is absolutely crucial to creating the Transatlantic Alliance, which has underpinned both Western Europe and the whole notion of the West uh, in, uh, in world affairs uh, in the second half of the 20th century. What do you think explains Bevin's staunch anti-communism? Bevin had seen the communists at work in the trade unions in the 1920s and 30s. Indeed, he he faced a a running battle with the communists in his own transport and general workers union. And what he understood about the communists is, is that allied to a set of social objectives, some of which he shared, a more equal society and so on, was an absolutely ruthless and undemocratic means of proceeding politically. One election ended elections with the communists. He'd seen that in the trade unions. He'd seen that in communist takeovers of um, not just unions, but of whole states um, uh, across Europe and uh, areas within the Soviet sphere uh, of action after 1917. And he was absolutely determined that that shouldn't happen to Western Europe and to Britain after 1945. And so he was never beguiled by... uh, socialists who thought that communism was simply an extension of socialism. He saw a fundamental difference between democratic socialism, where liberty and equality went hand in hand, and Stalinist communism, where there was no liberty and uh, the equality only came at at the price of massive repression and wholesale murder. And he understood that. He was never beguiled by Stalin, and uh, he... uh, Uh, he came down uh, really hard against Stalinism in his negotiations with uh, the Soviet Union after 1945, up to and including maybe his his greatest act with George Marshall, who by then was Secretary of State of the United States, which was uh, masterminding the Berlin airlift. When Stalin, in a classic act of force majeure, tries to force West Berlin to become part of the Soviet bloc, because it's surrounded by communist East Germany after 1945. He cuts off the electricity and he breaks the communications. What Bevin does with with, uh, uh, George Marshall is organises the Berlin airlift, which is literally day by day sending big transporter planes in with people, goods, supplies and food into West Berlin. And that... uh, puts Stalin on the spot because he then realises that the only way he's going to be able to uh, triumph over West Berlin is by starting a war. And uh, Bevin's hunch, which is correct, is that Stalin wasn't prepared to start the Third World War in 1949 because he would have lost that. And it's Bevin standing up to Stalin which prevents, first of all, West Berlin and then the whole of West Germany from becoming part of the Soviet uh, Uh, sphere after 1945 and without that we wouldn't have had a free and democratic Western Europe. And two key developments in the period where he was Foreign Secretary are the Marshall Plan and NATO. How instrumental was he in those two? 
Bevin was central to both the Marshall Plan and to NATO. It's his negotiations with George Marshall that lead to the Marshall Plan. And indeed, it's Marshall's belief that Bevin can deliver a democratic Western Europe in support of, uh, uh, of American foreign policy goals, which is basically anti-communism and limiting Stalin's sway, which is what persuades uh, President Truman and his Secretary of State, George Marshall, to create the Marshall Plan. And out of the Marshall Plan and the Berlin Airlift, which I was talking about uh, a few moments ago, come NATO. Because in 1945, the American plan had been to leave Europe within two years. And indeed, Bevin's toughest job after 1945 in these crucial first two years between 1945 and 1947 are to persuade the Americans to stay in Europe because the American plan in 1945 is to do a deal with Stalin whereby Germany becomes demilitarized and neutral whereupon America can take its troops out. What Bevin sees with crystal clarity because of his understanding of Stalin and Stalinism is a demilitarized and neutral Germany after 1945 will immediately go into the Soviet zone just as Czechoslovakia and Poland had done after 1945. And by a long process of patient negotiation, he persuades the Americans both to keep their troops in Germany after 1945 and not to agree to a demilitarized and neutral Germany. And it's out of that that the Western uh, zones of Germany, which are basically the American and British zones, are turned into a West German state, a democratic state, with American and British troops remaining in position. And it's from that that NATO is negotiated in the wake of the Berlin airlift in 1949. So Bevin is absolutely crucial to creating the transatlantic alliance, which has underpinned both Western Europe and the whole notion of the West uh, in uh, in world affairs uh, in the second half of the 20th century and it, now as we are into the 21st century. And a- another crucial uh, development in this period was Britain's plans to get uh, independent nuclear defence. W- what was Bevin's view on that? Without Bevin, I'm not sure that Britain would have developed the independent nuclear deterrent after 1945. Bevin's view is that with both the United States and Russia having uh, nuclear weapons, if Britain is going to be a continuing world power, then it has to have them too. As he says in the famous meeting, which agrees this, I want this bloody thing over here and I want the Union Jack on top of it. He said, speaking of of the nuclear deterrents. Now, uh, Hugh Dalton, who was Chancellor of the Exchequer at the time, was fiercely against Britain developing a nuclear programme because of the cost. And I'm not sure which way Attlee would have gone between Dalton and Bevin if... um, if it weren't for Bevin's force of personality. And it's very important to understand why Bevin takes this view. It's because he didn't sufficiently trust the Americans after 1945 to safeguard Western security. That He thought Britain had to have an independent deterrent. As I was uh, uh, saying uh, uh, earlier, there was a big problem about America withdrawing from Europe after 1945. And it was a chicken and egg situation. Once Britain developed the nuclear deterrent, that helped persuade the Americans, Truman and George Marshall, that Britain was really serious about keeping Russia out of Western Europe. And that gave them the confidence in turn to support Britain in the Berlin airlift and then to agree to the NATO treaty. The great irony is that after NATO was negotiated, arguably Britain didn't need the deterrence 
because what NATO needed a nuclear deterrent. It wasn't clear that NATO needed three nuclear deterrents, namely Brit- Britain's, America's, and in due course, the French nuclear deterrent too. And that's been a big debate about uh, nuclear uh, status all the way since the 1950s, is whether NATO and the West needs three nuclear deterrents rather than one. How did the left of the Labour Party respond to Bevin, thinking about the fact that he was pro-nuclear, very anti-communist, something of an imperialist? Did that cause divides in the party? The left had a a love-hate relationship with Ernie Bevin. They loved the trade union leader who who stood up to the Tories and negotiated wage deals and a better deal for the working class of a kind which had never existed before. uh, they understood that he was a, a union strongman. I mean, Bevin had been the organiser-in-chief during the general strike of 1926. No one could claim he was a patsy for the aristocracy or, or the Tories. On the other hand, of course, there was a lot of fellow travellers in the Labour Party when it came to communism. That was a big, big factor in the left in the 1930s, 40s and 50s. And uh, they didn't like Bevin's really tough anti-communist rhetoric. Now, it's my view, looking back at at, uh, post-war Labour history, that the success of the Labour government of 1945, and indeed of the Labour Party at its best in the decades afterwards, was this combination of Bevan and Bevin. The welfare state, Anou and Bevan and the NHS, and being tough and patriotic on defence and and international politics, symbolised by Ernie Bevin and NATO. It's Bevan and the NHS and Bevin and NATO, which have been the twin pillars which have enabled Labour to be a successful party of government at its best since 1945. And it all began with Bevan and Bevin serving under Attlee in, in the 1945 uh, Labour government. Now, right at the start of our conversation, you alluded to... Bevin's imperialism and in particular the situation in Palestine and in the book that's perhaps one of the areas where he comes in for the most criticism. I wonder if you could expand a little bit about his role in Palestine and also whether you think he was partly motivated by anti-Semitism there. Britain was the colonial power in Palestine in 1945 and had been since uh, the end of the First World War. And so it was always going to be very difficult, this business of Britain withdrawing from the Middle East. But what most people were agreed on in 1945, including Churchill, was that what we now call the two-state solution was necessary. The creation of a Jewish state, of what became Israel, but also a Palestinian state of the Palestinian Arabs. Now, uh, Bevin wouldn't agree to that. He wouldn't agree to the creation of a Jewish state. What he wanted essentially was for Britain to remain the imperial power in the Middle East and negotiate a form of local government where Jews and and Palestinians would coexist. The problem with that is that didn't involve a Jewish state and wouldn't have created a Jewish homeland, even though since the Balfour Declaration of 1917, Britain had been committed in principle to the creation of a Jewish homeland, meaning a Jewish state. Now, when I came to look at why it was Bevin was so resistant to the creation of a Jewish state, it became very clear to me that part of the reason was straightforward anti-Semitism. There's a lot of anti-Semitic rhetoric in coming from Bevin in the 1940s, Jews getting above themselves, getting uppity, rich Jews being uh, a bad thing and so on. And when it absolutely came to the crunch 
1947, Bevin would neither agree to the creation of a Jewish state, nor, crucially, would he agree to large-scale Jewish immigration into Palestine, which, of course, was to go hand-in-hand with the creation of that Jewish state. And my reluctant conclusion was that anti-Semitism played a part in that, and I think it's uh, the least reputable part of Bevin's career. And one of the other big imperial issues at this time was, of course, India and, and the subsequent partition. What role did Bevin play there? India uh, was largely subject to Clement Attlee after 1945, because Attlee had a lot of Indian experience. He'd served on the Simon Commission, which is a big uh, royal commission looking at the future of India back in the 1930s. And it was Attlee's call to set a date for the independence of, of India in 1947 that determined policy on India, both the independence of India and the partition. In, uh, in 1947. Now, uh, I think that what Attlee did was the least worst option in respect of India in 1947. The partition was, was bloody and terrible, but for Britain to have tried to remain the imperial power in the Indian subcontinent uh, into the 1950s would have been disastrous and I think would have just led to Britain getting involved in a massive guerrilla war of the kind which happens in Palestine and which ultimately leads to Britain leaving in ignominy. Uh, now, Bevin didn't see it that way. Bevin didn't want to leave India. And the only big issue on which Bevin and Attlee disagree in the 1945 government is on setting a date for Britain getting out of India. Bevin doesn't want to set a date and Attlee does. And my view is that uh, Attlee is right on this. However, the friendship and loyalty between the two is is so great that no one much outside the the top uh, levels of the cabinet knew that Bevin and Attlee had disagreed on this. And once Attlee has taken the decision that we are going to give independence to India and a date is going to be set, Bevin very loyally supports him, just as Attlee always supports Bevin on standing up to Stalin even though I think uh, reading the papers, I'm not sure Attlee would have been, Attlee would have been quite so single-minded in, uh, in standing up to Russia as, as Ernie Bevin was in the late 1940s. Are there any other areas in his career that you feel that Bevin got it wrong, as he did on Palestine and potentially on India? Uh, No big issues, actually. I think he was right on the role of the trade unions in society. He was right on a new deal for uh, working people. He was right on standing up to the dictators. And indeed, Bevin has a a stronger reputation for standing up to the dictators even than Churchill does, because it's crucial to understand in the late 20s and early 30s, Churchill develops a soft spot for Mussolini. Uh, Now, Uh, Bevin never develops a soft spot for Mussolini. He never develops a soft spot for any dictators, whereas uh, Churchill goes to Rome and meets Mussolini and talks about the kind and gentle Signor Signor Mussolini. And this is a very important background to the politics of the 1930s because, of course, the first dictator to to, uh, rampage over the the liberties of, of smaller countries in Europe is Italy with the invasion of Ethiopia, then called Abyssinia, in 1935. So Bevin has a record of being more right on more big issues than any front-rank politician in the 1930s 
and 40s. And though he wasn't right on everything, and I think he was grievously wrong on Israel and Palestine, his record is pretty good. And that's the reason uh, why I wanted to write his biography, because I think he needs to be rehabilitated. I think he also has very powerful lessons for the Labour Party about needing to be pragmatic about achieving power and being absolutely uncompromising about standing up for British defence and international liberty and Britain's international interests. And I think uh, it's, as I, as I said, it's this combination of Bevan and Bevin, which is the Labour Party at its best, and you need both sides of that equation. It's interesting that you talk about this combination. And, I mean, clearly Bevin is a huge figure in his own day, but actually nowadays I get the sense that Bevan is a lot better known than Bevin is. Why do you think he's become perhaps relatively obscure? The reason that Bevin has fallen into the shade is most of my Labour Party friends, even today, are much happier talking about the NHS than talking about NATO. Uh, International defence and dealing with international dictators, particularly on the left, is a necessary evil as far as they're concerned, whereas what they're actually in politics for, as they see it, is a more equal society and a stronger welfare state. Now, I'm with them in wanting the more equal society and the strong welfare state. That is what the Labour Party exists to do. But it will never be able to do it unless it can get into power and is trusted to manage Britain's international relations. And it's this combination of Bevin and Bevan, which I think we need to celebrate, because why is it that Labour finds it so difficult to win elections? It's partly because particularly the English middle class, has big, big doubts about whether Labour can be trusted with power and in particular whether it could be trusted with Britain's defence. And let's be absolutely blunt about it. That is the reason why we've had such difficulties in the recent past with Jeremy Corbyn. You know, in that election last year, in 2019, the fundamental issue, as I saw it, and I was knocking on lots of doors, is that people just didn't trust Labour under Jeremy Corbyn with running the country and in particular managing Britain's defence. And so I think we need to be celebrating Ernie Bevin just as much as we celebrate Anoa and Bevan. And it's only when Labour does those two together, it can be trusted on standing up for Britain abroad, the John Bull side of the equation, as well as the NHS and the nation's doctor. It needs to be able to do the two. And I hope coming out of my book, people will see the two as being equally important. And when you yourself were in government in the the Blair and Brown years, how far do you think that Labour government was influenced by Bevin? It was influenced a lot by it, because look at Tony Blair. He represented the two together. Uh, What did he uh, seek to do as Prime Minister? To be strong in representing Britain abroad, maybe too strong in the the eyes of some of uh, my Labour Party friends who thought that we were too robust abroad. But equally, we were a a social democratic government that invested uh, uh, shed loads more than the Conservatives would have done at the time in the public services, in the NHS. We trebled spending on the NHS. We doubled spending on education, state education. Remember, Tony Blair famously said that his three priorities were education, education and education, and he sent his kids to state schools. That had never happened with a Labour Party leader before. So it was the the Blair and Brown government, in my view, was the equivalent of Bevin and Bevan together, which is the 
reason why I think we won three general elections and for 13 years, an unprecedentedly long period, we were trusted with running the country. And if we're going to get back into government again, as I hope we will, then it'll be by learning the lessons of that Labour government and the Attlee government of being about both Bevin and Bevan, the NHS and NATO, being trusted with managing Britain's relations abroad, standing up for British interests, not being soft on defence, but at the same time being a party that's going to invest more in the public services and be a proud advancer of the welfare state. And during the war years, Bevin uh, famously had a good relationship with Winston Churchill. Do you think any of the other political parties have taken any lessons from Bevin or still try and embody his legacy? The Tories have uh, always admired Ernie Bevin. Indeed, uh, somewhat to my embarrassment, as uh, as I've been uh, uh, taking the uh, the book to podcast, I was going to say taking it around the country, one can't at the moment, but I've been going from podcast to podcast and interview to interview. Uh, the Conservatives have been queuing up to say how much they admire him. Jeremy Hunt, the former uh, Foreign Secretary, uh, proudly told me that uh, when you walk up the grand staircase in the in the Foreign Office, there's a, a huge bust of Bevan halfway up. And he always used to nod at Bevan as, as he went up the staircase. And uh, uh, we need the same uh, attitude to be taken to Bevan on the Labour side. Now, uh, many Labour figures have done. Uh, I, I did a podcast with Tony Blair. Uh, Gordon Brown uh, had, uh, did a, uh, a testimonial for the book saying that Bevan was a huge figure in Labour history. And uh, to my mind, uh, the review of which I'm most proud is by Alan Johnson, who was after Ernie Bevan, I think the greatest trade union leader who became a Labour politician in the post-war years, because of course, Alan Johnson went from being head of the Communication Workers Union into becoming an MP and then and then Education Secretary under Tony Blair and Home Secretary under Gordon Brown. And Alan's a great friend of mine. I was his junior minister when I was uh, schools minister. And I just wish on the model of Ernie Bevin that uh, after Gordon Brown, he'd become leader of the Labour Party. And I think if he had done, we might have started winning elections rather than losing them in the 2010s. Um, OK, Andrew, I think I've been through everything I was going to ask you. Is there anything really crucial that we you think we should have talked about? Uh, the only thing I'd like to say in conclusion is that Ernie Bevin, his career is a, a whole set of object lessons for the modern world. But I hope people will also read the book to bring this extraordinary human being to life. This was an amazing guy who left school at 11, could barely read and write, and yet managed to run the entire British Empire and help create a welfare state and create the biggest trade union in the world in the 1940s. He was a man of enormous charisma, force of personality, joie de vivre. I mean, he was just an amazing uh, human being. And I always think in history, it's the amazing human beings who are just as interesting as the people who wield power. And in Ernie Bevin, you've got both, a bit like Churchill, which is part of the reason why I called the book Labour's Churchill, this amazing, larger-than-life human being who also became a great national leader. That was Andrew Adonis. Ernest Bevan, Labour's Churchill, is out now, published by Biteback. Thanks for listening. This podcast was produced by Ben Hewitt and Jack Bateman. Join us again tomorrow when we'll be revisiting Britain in the Second World War. Mm-hmm.